Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, happy Independence Day. How are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing well. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, there has been a lawsuit filed about SB 150. That was, of course, the anti-trans law that passed during the legislative session this year. So um, it, the implementation has temporarily been blocked. So Jasmine's going to be talking about that quite a bit. There's a lot here to talk about. I am going to be talking about uh, Eric Dieter's Freedom Fest, an annual, uh, I don't know, rally something? A Freedom Fest. It's a Freedom Fest. You know, it's a Freedom Fest is what it is. Uh, and it is taking place this uh, September, but the guest list has been released, and it's got some real zingers on there, including former President Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, so, uh, some big names. Yeah, and uh, there's a bit of drama involving the Republican Party, so that's the reason why we want to talk about the day, that today. Uh, in addition to the lawsuit about SB 150, Jasmine's also going to be talking to us about uh, the abortion lawsuit that's making its way through the courts. And then I'm going to be ending us today by talking a little bit about the candidates being selected for the House District 93 race in Lexington. Um, that is happening because of the death of Lamine Swan. So without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us what we need to know about SB 150. Okay, so a bit of good news from last week. A federal court temporarily blocked Senate Bill 150 while the lawsuit is pending. Um, So a little bit of a recap here because it's been a couple months since we talked about it. On May 3rd, the ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of seven youth to block Senate Bill 150, which is the omnibus anti-trans bill that was passed by the legislature this year. The case is in U.S. District Court in the Western District of Kentucky, and Judge David Hale is who authored the opinion. He's a Barack Obama appointee, and he served as the U.S. attorney for the Western District before he was appointed as a judge. Um, So the plaintiffs in the case are seven Jane Doe and John Doe trans children and teens ranging from ages 9 to 16 um, that live in the eastern or western district of Kentucky. And so the claims in the case are there's a due process claim and an equal protection claim. So the due process claim is basically that the due process clause contained in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects the rights of parents to make decisions concerning the care, custody, and control of their children. Um, and there's a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2000 um, that that says that. Um, it's about like non-parent visitation rights, so it's not about the exact same thing, um, but that case is the the case that like established like the rights of parents to make decisions for their children. The equal protection claim, um, of course, the equal protection clause says that no state shall deny anyone equal protection of the laws. Um, so you can't, you know, single a certain group out. Um, laws have to protect everyone equally. And so this law, um, the plaintiffs argue singles out transgender children and teens. Um, So under the Equal Protection Clause, government classifications based on sex are subject to heightened scrutiny. Um, We're going to be talking about scrutiny a little bit more, and I'll explain that later. Um, And sex-based classifications are entitled to intermediate scrutiny, but the Supreme Court of the United States has not addressed Um, whether this level of scrutiny applies to transgender individuals. But we have a lot of um, like circuit court of appeals cases and and things like that. 
So um, the stage that we're at in this lawsuit is kind of the first one where the plaintiffs have asked for a preliminary injunction. And we've talked about that a lot on the show. Um, An injunction, a preliminary one, would block um, enforcement of the bill temporarily while the lawsuit is pending. And I have said these things a lot on the show, uh, but there's four factors to grant an injunction. First, whether the movement has a strong likelihood of success on the merits, whether they would suffer suffer irreparable injury without an injunction, whether issuing an injunction was caused substantial harm to others, and last, whether the public interest would be served by issuing an injunction. Um, and even though there's four elements there, the first one is kind of the really important one. Um, there's case law that says of these, the likelihood of success on the merits is often the determinative factor, particularly when a constitutional violation is alleged. So that's where we are in the process. And in this case, um, just a little bit about the facts. Six of the seven plaintiffs are already receiving um, some form of treatment, puberty blockers or hormone therapy. And the seventh anticipates needing to begin treatment upon starting puberty, which could be at any time. Second, puberty blockers and hormones are not banned for other minors under the bill. Uh, We talked about that when we first talked about the lawsuit being filed, that um, there are lots of reasons that minors who are not trying to transition might be on puberty blockers or hormones. There are a lot of conditions um, where that may be necessary, and they aren't banned for other minors, only transgender children. It's also undisputed in the case uh, that puberty blockers and hormones are not given to prepubescent children with gender dysphoria either. Um, And so based on the evidence that has been submitted so far, the court found that the treatments barred by Senate Bill 150 are medically appropriate and necessary for some transgender children under the evidence-based standard of care accepted by all major medical organizations in the U.S. So that's something we talked about when we talked about the lawsuit as well. Um, All the evidence of, like, this is the appropriate standard of care. These are all these medical associations that agree. um, And that was part of the evidence that was put before the court. So um, starting with the equal protection claim, The plaintiffs argue that heightened scrutiny applies and the Commonwealth, uh, the Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, argued that the law is entitled to only rational basis review, so the lowest level of scrutiny. Um, So, Robert, are you familiar with, like, levels of scrutiny in the court system? From attending the Jasmine Smith School of Law, uh, (laughs) having recorded this podcast for a long enough time, I am familiar with many of them. Um, But remind me what rational basis is. Okay, so rational basis is just the lowest form, the lowest level of scrutiny. And it's just for like any general law there. The government has to have a rational basis for passing the law. And so that can be like nearly anything. (laughs) Like, um, you know, protecting the health 
of teens because of risks associated with these drugs um, would probably be enough for a rational, there's a rational basis for a law. And so um, any like general law would get rational basis review. But if a law discriminates based on um, a protected class, like race, um, that gets the highest level of scrutiny, which is strict scrutiny. And so under strict scrutiny, uh, the government has to have a compelling interest in passing the law and, and discriminating. And it has to, they have to be like doing it by the least restrictive means. So like the legislature and laws are allowed to discriminate, but they have to do so following very specific laid out rules uh, in order to pass constitutional muster according to the constitution. Yeah. And there has to be a really good reason to do it. A compelling interest that's strict scrutiny. And then there's another level of heightened scrutiny that sex-based discrimination gets, um, which is sometimes called intermediate scrutiny and it's important interests. So it's, it's not any interest. It's not compelling, but it's an important interest. Um, and so that's the level of scrutiny that sex-based discrimination is entitled to. Yeah. And, um, and, and based on what you were saying just a minute ago, like it isn't really clear in the law, like whether trans transgender law or laws about transgender people or children qualify for sex uh, in the intermediate, because I guess technically like <laughs> under the law, uh, sex is still very binary and gender is still very binary. Yeah. yeah. There is precedent, but the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't yeah, the, um, explicitly answered that question. Right. So plaintiffs are asking for heightened scrutiny and the AG is asking for rational basis review. And the court agreed with the plaintiffs. Um, he said that he said that Senate Bill 150 prohibits the use of puberty blockers or hormones for the purpose of attempting to alter the appearance of or to validate a minor's perception of the minor's sex if that appearance or perception is inconsistent with the minor's sex. And because it dis this law discriminates on the basis of sex, it's entitled to heightened scrutiny. Of course, um, we're talking about the medical provisions in the bill, not um, some of like the school stuff. And so that that's what we're talking right, about. Right. Um, and yeah, and I guess like, is there like a severability issue here? That's a word I know. Uh, would Because this law does approach like lots of different things. Yeah, so the injunction is for the sections that deal with like the medical transition. Gotcha. Um, so the court found that because it discriminates on the basis of sex, it's entitled to heightened scrutiny. Um, and there's Sixth Circuit precedent, which Kentucky's part of the Sixth Circuit from 2004, um, that states that discrimination based on transgender status is discrimination on the basis of sex. So we do have precedent from our Circuit Court of Appeals. The Commonwealth, um, in arguing that it's not entitled to any level of heightened scrutiny. They cited to like pregnancy and abortion cases to support its argument. Like they cited to Dobbs. Um, but the court noted that the law or policy issued didn't bar access to treatment for some patients, but not others depending on the patient's sex. So like the court is saying like, 
no, those cases are different because they didn't discriminate. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. That, I, I kind of see what way. I kind of like understand what the Commonwealth was trying to do there to try to be like, well, if sex doesn't like if anybody can get pregnant, I guess it is discrimination on the basis of sex. And I guess the court just didn't didn't buy that is what it seems like to me. Yeah, I think they were citing cases that that said that like abortion restrictions like didn't weren't an equal protection issue. Um, and the court was like, well, the the access to treatment in those abortion cases like didn't apply to some people but not others the way that this law does. Right, right. Um, so the level of scrutiny to apply is that the government must show that the classification serves important governmental objectives and that the discriminatory means employed are substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. So that's the, that's like the, the heightened scrutiny that um, this law is entitled to and what the government must show for the bill to pass constitutional muster. And so um, those stated justifications for this bill, um, according to the Commonwealth, are protecting vulnerable groups and children from abuse, neglect, and mistakes, and protecting the integrity and ethics of the medical profession. Um, And the court found that the Commonwealth did not, that they failed to meet their burden and showing that the ban is substantially related to those objectives. Um, he said that there was no evidence of any abuse, neglect, or mistakes protected against in the bill, and nor is the protection of children just in general sufficiently persuasive given that the statute allows those treatments for cisgender minors. Right. Um, so... And then their other justification was that the bill promotes integrity and ethics of the medical profession. And they cited this article that said that um, hormones are huge moneymakers. But the court talks about that the article's source for that quote was a video that actually said that female-to-male bottom surgeries are moneymakers. Um, so it wasn't hormones, it was surgeries, and surgeries are not, not at right. issue in this case. So um, in addressing this argument, the court also noted the Commonwealth's use of inflammatory language in its brief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. which, which is something like you don't, you don't see a court doing a lot unless it's, called for unless they're trying to like make a point to the lawyers um that you know you're being yeah you're being inflammatory like this yeah yeah yeah. that it's that it's uncalled for or not particularly appreciated by the court um so senate bill 150 the court said it would prevent doctors from applying appropriate standards of care The Commonwealth also made a reference in its brief that that there's been an ideological takeover of the medical profession, which the court also didn't seem to care for as evidenced by like a footnote um, in the opinion. So um, that is the equal protection argument. Um, and, And so the court found that 
Senate Bill 150 is entitled to a heightened level of scrutiny and that the plaintiffs would be likely to succeed on the merits because the Commonwealth hasn't shown that the ban is substantially related to, you know, important government objectives. So that's equal protection. The other argument is a due process claim. um, And that's about like parental rights. And here, um, the Commonwealth actually argues that parents do have a fundamental right to choose treatment for their children, uh, but it has to be legal treatment. And this is illegal treatment. Of course, like this argument completely presupposes that Senate Bill 150 is illegal. Um, (laughs) So the court said that the Commonwealth has effectively conceded that parents have a right to choose medical treatment. Um, and, and it also cites case law that, that says that. <laughs> wow. So uh, they, they really like, I don't, that's crazy, right? That, is that as weird as it seems on the face of it, that they like tried to make an argument that this law makes it illegal and therefore even though parents can choose it, like, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, <laughs> but I think like, I mean, parents' rights have been part of... Republicans like platforms. And so I guess they wanted to try to tread carefully here and, and not try to argue that parents don't have rights to choose what's best for their children. Um, Cause that's kind of part of their, their whole thing, except when it comes to transgender children, it seems. Yeah. It, I mean, it is kind of like two things and it, it just kind of goes in, in my opinion, I don't know. I, I, and I believe this pretty strongly is that like, People don't really care about like individual rights at all. They just use that as a smokescreen to like make people do the things that they want them to do. Right. So, like they don't actually yeah. be like, oh, parents have the right to choose whether or not their children read these books. They just don't want anybody reading these books. And that's a fine smokescreen that you can use. It's like we don't they also don't want, you know, kids to have access to hormone therapy. And therefore, even though that goes against what parents in these cases want to do, they just have to find a way to argue all these things. And they literally couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And the court yeah. was like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Har- I mean, hardly anyone has like 100% ideological consistency, I guess. No, nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, on either side. Um, but, but yeah, so I-, I guess like that's what they wanted to be careful about here is not trying to argue that, parents don't have rights and there's there's case law that that goes against that so it was probably a tough argument to make so that's what they came up with um that they that they only have a right to to choose legal treatment but the bulk of the commonwealth's argument um the court says is directed at a claim that the plaintiffs have not made namely that parents have a fundamental right to obtain whatever drugs they want for their children without restriction and the court's like that. that that's not what they're not saying. What saying. Yes. <laughs> um, and so the court found that the plaintiffs are, or that this law is also entitled to heightened scrutiny under due process because this right of parents to choose treatment for their children is fundamental government action that burdens the exercise of that right are subject to strict scrutiny and will be upheld only when they are narrowly tailored to a compelling government interest. So basically the court found most of the opinion is focused on that first factor for granting a preliminary injunction, which is likelihood of success on the merits. 
Um, so the court found that they met that element and then took took a little bit of time to address the last three elements, which are irreparable injury, substantial harm to others, and the public interest. And the court noted that the plaintiffs offered evidence of injury, um, you know, specifically psychological psychological distress um, that the plaintiffs would experience if they were um, taken off the treatments or the need to move out of state. So they offered evidence of injury. Um, the court noted the substantial harm to others that this bill would also harm other transgender children, not just the plaintiffs in the case. Um, and then last the public interest set cited case law and saying that it's always in the public interest to prevent violation of a party's constitutional rights. So that it was a 15 page um, opinion and order granting the injunction. And so of course that is, temporary while the lawsuit's pending and not a ruling on the merits. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll update everyone as this case progresses, but right. um, it's, it's definitely a, so, some good news um, for right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a federal case, which, you know, I guess we, we talk about these whenever like abortion or uh, uh, I guess tra- now like trans stuff uh, makes its way through, but it is always uh, kind of an, on a different schedule. And of course on a different track than uh, a lot of the state stuff that we cover. But um, yeah, always, always interesting stuff. Always interesting when we get the constitution, getting the constitution involved on the 4th of July. Yeah. That's uh, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Thanks Jasmine for that. Um, th- that's good news. It's good news for, for, for the kids and any of these treatments and everything else. So um, hopefully they, I, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty confident about this level of uh, the, the courts, but of course we'll see what happens at the appeal level. And then, you know, as it makes its way up to uh, the Supreme court yeah. in a few years. So, and, and the Sixth Circuit is pretty conservative. And then, of course, we know how cases have been going at the sub- U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and and so, I don't know, sometimes it's hard to think positively about things like this, but this is definitely positive news mm-hmm. um, right now. And I thought it was a very well-reasoned sure. opinion. Yeah. Yeah, those, those, yeah, I mean, we're obviously not there yet, but like the appellate level and who you draw is such an important thing. And all of the appellate level shifting so much. I mean, it's, it is, it's crazy. So we'll see what it will look like when it gets to that level, too. Or how many judges are they going to get on to? Yeah. So it's a, uh, it, yeah. Uh, anyways, we'll talk about it when we get there. Right now, we're going to talk about Eric Dieter's Freedom Fest. Um, <laughs> I, Jasmine, so this this happened, I guess this all kind of started on the 27th, the last time that we recorded, the day that we recorded. Uh, Eric Dieters, former candidate for governor, former, I mean, what, what else has he done? I, when, when I say Eric Dieters, what, what pops into your mind, Jasmine? Um, I think of the bill that was passed about unauthorized, pra- increasing penalties for unauthorized practice of law, um, because people were kind of calling it like an Eric Dieter's bill right. um, because he he lost his ability to practice law um, but still has an, a law office where he like says he operates as a paralegal um, so that that's kind of what I always think about is that 
that bill and the, the following about, yeah. news articles about like who who may have been in mind yeah um he yes he he is a republican candidate for governor but is definitely like kind of a gadfly person um who doesn't really get along super well with the republican establishment all the time um he tried to call himself like trump's candidate he was on uh the stage the big ket debate that everybody except kelly craft was the, no that was the time that everybody was there and he was there and basically just like yelled at kelly craft the whole time um and, and i think at the time i said he was like running interference for daniel cameron which i thought was kind of weird but um that is kind of coming coming up here so anyways eric dieters for the past three years has done this event called the patriots day freedom fest that's going to take place on september the 9th so patriots day jasmine is actually a real holiday um it's in april it's when they run the boston marathon uh it kind of commemorates the battle of lexington and concord so it's like kind of more of like a massachusetts and like northeast thing um but for eric dieters i guess it's like the weekend of september 11th um sure whatever you can call you know what whatever we every day is patriots day it's america right fourth of july it's patriots day independence day patriots day it's all kinds of things so anyways that is what eric dieters uh tweeted out he tweeted out the guest list um this event is pretty it's pretty big um last year at, like lots of major online conservative internet people um candace owens kimberly guilfoyle donald trump jr they all came and there were like fifteen thousand people there by one count that i saw which that's a that's a big rally that's a substantial that, yeah that is big <laughs> yeah I, you know um eric dieter's man of the people i guess so in in the tweet that eric dieter sent out he announced that president donald trump would be the headliner. And that's a big get, right? That's a big deal. Getting the, any president of the United States to come and speak in Kentucky is not an everyday event. That doesn't happen often. Um, and so getting a Donald Trump to come and speak in northern Kentucky, uh, you know, that, that's a big deal. So other speakers include the president's two adult sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, Kimberly Guilfoyle. And if I'm not mistaken, she's married to Donald Trump Jr. I think he's she's married to Donald Trump Jr. I'm pretty sure about that. Dinesh D'Souza, who is a, a conservative documentarian, um, he's if you've never heard of him, yeah, that's a break you didn't count on. Uh, James O'Keefe. No, I've heard of him. James O'Keefe's same kind of deal. I don't really remember his deal, and I don't really want to look it up because I'm sure it's gross. Uh, and, and lots of other folks in in, in that kind of vein. Um, but. Uh, for our purposes, listed as a special guest, this is important to us. Uh, is is Daniel Cameron? So he's not on the the you know the list, the you know Coachella type list where the names get smaller as the speakers get less of a big deal. Uh, he is kind of off to the side, saying like Daniel Cameron will be a special guest at this event. Um, you know, Eric Dieters often talks a big game. Uh, you know, his videos are known for bombastic commentary. He says he's a paralegal when really he's acting as a lawyer. So there's some doubt <laughs> as to whether or not Donald Trump is actually confirmed. Uh, and in fact, the media could not independently verify that Donald Trump was coming. But but Eric Dieters was very confident. He said, uh, subject to some big change, he will be there about Donald Trump. Daniel Cameron did, however, confirm that he was finalizing his schedule and expected to attend. So Daniel Cameron will, in fact, be there. Uh, and a lot of people are thinking that Daniel Cameron probably had a hand in getting Donald Trump uh, to come to this event because they are obviously close on whatever level that Donald Trump is close to people because, you know, he did the whole endorsement deal with him and, and everything else. So this event is happening and Daniel Cameron is coming and Cameron's embrace of Dieter's event um, has caused some other folks in the Kentucky GOP to get kind of angry. Like we mentioned, Eric Dieters is not the most popular person 
in uh, the Republican Party. So first and foremost, Congressman Thomas Massey ripped Daniel Cameron, saying, quote, why would the, ter- the attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer of the Commonwealth, appear at an event or- organized by a man who lost his license to practice law in multiple states, who has a restraining order against him, who has been arrested for contempt, and who recently pled guilty to three charges of harassing and menacing, unquote. So Thomas Massey coming out strong against Eric Dieters and in so doing, coming out kind of pretty critical of Daniel Cameron. So it I is, mean, those are that those are good questions. Yes, yeah, I, I, I. Why I, would the attorney general do that? I agree. I think there are probably more questions for like us to be asking. Uh, but Thomas yeah. Massey is. But <laughs> right, but there's a reason that Thomas Massey is upset. Yes, you're right, and we're getting to that right now. It is worth noting that Dieters has said he is 99% sure he will run in a primary against Massey in the Republican primary. Dieters is upset with Massey because he voted against the censure of Adam Schiff and against his vote. And and also Thomas Massey voted to raise the debt ceiling. So the politics of Thomas Massey are quite interesting. He did vote for those things. um, But Massey is considerably are like very often seen as like one of the most conservative and one of the most like kind of like right wing ish members of Congress, but has also emerged uh, as a, uh, an important deputy to to the Speaker of the House. And, and Kevin McCarthy obviously had a hard time becoming Speaker. It was a very close vote. There were these people who stood against him, but Thomas Massey wasn't one because of, you know, some deals he struck about other actions that were coming forward. And some of the things that, that uh, Thomas Massey really wanted to do, you know, uh, M- McCarthy, uh, yeah, McCarthy said uh, he would he would he would do them. And in exchange, Massey did things like vote for the increase in the debt ceiling and vote against the censure of Adam Schiff. Uh, Eric Dieters wanted uh, Massey to take a much harder line, not to play politics at all, and just to always vote um, for the right wing thing, no matter what it is. So that's kind of the politics behind it. Savannah Maddox, um, an ally of of Thomas Massey, and also one of the most, if not the most, conservative or right wing members of the Kentucky legislature, um, she also weighed in. She was quoted by the Courier Journal as saying, "Quote." I find it hard to believe that the Republican nominee for governor would attend a campaign launch event for someone who wants to defeat Congressman Thomas Massey, the most conservative and most popular congressman in Kentucky. If Cameron is speaking at this event to fire up the base in Kentucky's 4th Congressional District, he will do just that, but not in the way he hopes, unquote. So Dieters, Maddox, and Massey are all from northern Kentucky. Uh, Massey's from Lewis County, uh, so I'm being generous with the definition of northern Kentucky here. Um, and, and Cameron kind of mostly spends his time in Kentucky uh, in, in, while he's in Kentucky in Louisville or Frankfurt. Um, there are a lot of weird divisions in northern Kentucky politics. Uh, we went over that during the primary election and kind of things, you know, us not being up there have a hard time kind of following who's mad at who and what's going on up there a lot, especially with the conservatives. Uh, and a lot of folks that seem like they ought to be aligned are often quite mad at each other. So, Jasmine, um, mm-hmm. he- hearing all of this, do you think that this is a big deal? Does Daniel Cameron stand, um, uh, you know, is he, is is a, some segment of conservatives in northern kentucky gonna stay mad at him um will it have any impact on the election or is this just kind of silly season nonsense that we're trying to talk about something uh, while it's the summer i don't think it's gonna upset the conservatives um in northern kentucky like the savannah maddox and thomas massey fans i i think i think the people who may like care about this or maybe moderates who 
more often than not vote Republican, um, but would consider voting for Bashir. You know, I don't know. I think that's I think those are the kind of people like never Trump type people. Yeah, that, like swing voters um, in, in the suburbs of Cincinnati like the Yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense. Like they're like, well, I, I like I don't really want like a liberal in charge of Kentucky. But the fact that the other guy is like a fan of Eric Dieters really bothers me. Um, and he is a person who's well known up there. That's a That's a really good point. Yeah, I think the yeah, and I think the conservatives up there that I don't know, maybe they're mad right now. They're going to vote for the Republican nominee over over Bashir, I think. So, yeah, yeah. I don't see that being as big of an issue. But I guess it doesn't surprise me, though, that Savannah Maddox may not be like closely aligned with Eric Dieters, because I, I think they're very different types of super conservatives you know like i i think she is just like politically smarter like politically smart and so i could see her being annoyed um at someone like eric dieters who like kind of flies by the seat of his pants yeah no i I, I think that's exactly right i think that is exactly right i think yeah uh, we've talked a lot about our like weird grudging i don't even know if you want to call it respect but like our feelings about savannah maddox are (laughs) complicated i don't know they're not that complicated we don't like her uh but she does have um a political wisdom um and and she is a little bit smarter politically than a lot of the other folks uh, at least in my observation um who who believe like her and i think she actually has rubbed off quite a bit on Thomas Massey, one of her closest allies, who did make this gambit in D.C. to support the Speaker uh, because it seemed inevitable that he would win and did, you know, gain some things politically from it. Um, so that that I think I, I don't I, I I wouldn't be surprised at all to hear or see that Savannah Maddox had something to do with that. And yes, Eric Dieters is not like that at all. He is like never compromise, never elicit any sort of concessions from anyone, just never do anything except for the more most right wing thing and then just never apologize. Uh, and that has gotten him, you know, disbarred. Um, a, a pariah in most, well, I don't know, maybe not so much of a pariah in the Republican Party because he is going to uh, uh, get uh, he's going to get Daniel Cameron and Donald Trump to come speak at his event. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely see, I mean, that's that's kind of the heart of the, the disagreement between those groups of people. Um, and yeah, I agree that I don't think that Savannah Maddox is going to vote for Andy Bashir. I think she's going to vote for Daniel Cameron, but it, it's kind of a it's a, it's a misstep, and that's kind of what you're paying attention to in July for a race mm-hmm. in November. It's kind of how, how the stage gets set for what happens in the fall. All right, anything else you want to say about Freedom Fest, Jasmine? No, I don't think so. All right, tell us what we need to know about this abortion lawsuit. All right, so this this has been a, a couple weeks ago that this happened, but we just haven't really had a chance to talk about it yet. Um, we just wanted to provide an update on the abortion lawsuit that's in state court in Kentucky. Um, so this is the ACLU and EMW Clinic's lawsuit challenging the trigger ban and heartbeat bill. So um, way back when um, an injunction was granted in Jefferson Circuit Court blocking the laws temporarily, that injunction was overturned by the Court of Appeals um, and then also the Supreme Court of Kentucky. And the Supreme Court also said that the EMW clinic didn't have um, standing to challenge the heartbeat bill. So this was not a ruling on the merits of the case, uh, but a procedural hurdle. So standing is required um, in every lawsuit. And 
you know, it's, it's a little more complicated than this. And there are different types of standing, but the three basic elements are injury causation and redressability. So a plaintiff has to have been injured or harmed. Um, the defendant, the person they're suing has to have caused the harm. So that's the causation element. And then redressability is that this lawsuit would remedy the outcome of this lawsuit would remedy the harm. So those are the three basic elements that you have to have to have standing. Um, and abortion clinics and medical providers have had third-party standing to challenge laws affecting their practice before. Um, the Kentucky Supreme Court noted there wasn't a lot of precedent on third-party standing in Kentucky and ended up rejecting a federal test that was an exception to the third party standing rule. Um, and recent U S Supreme court cases, um, like Dobbs and June medical have, have called, um, providers standing into question. Um, and so that was discussed in the opinion as well. So the court, the Supreme court of Kentucky said that the plaintiffs have standing to challenge the, trigger ban the the non-delegation issue and the non-delegation issue was that um the trigger ban was like an unconstitutional delegation of authority um but that they don't have standing to challenge the heartbeat bill so due to the supreme court's ruling the aclu um slash emw clinic asked to dismiss the case a couple weeks ago um, and are now seeking a plaintiff who would meet standing requirements. And um, the court granted that motion to dismiss without prejudice last week. So dismissal without prejudice means um, that, you know, it can be brought back. And so um, they're looking for a plaintiff who would be, um, who needs access to an abortion, which, um, you know, that that may be harder to find just because of, the timing of, of pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so this is definitely, um, it's, it's a hurdle, right? Yeah, certainly. Um, and so, um, you know, if, if they are able to find a plaintiff, um, they will, you know, I assume refile this lawsuit, uh, with new plaintiffs. Um, and then there, there's also still, um, a case that challenges the law on like first amendment grounds from um, Jewish women that right. two of whom we spoke to on the podcast. And so there is still um, another lawsuit out there. Um, but for the EMW clinics lawsuit, um, it's dismissed for now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like that the clinic in the ACLU wanted to go forward with a lawsuit that would be able to challenge both of the rationales and, right. and they were really only able to do one on their own. So instead of even go, I guess they could have, they could have gone forward with just their own lawsuit, but it would just have been about this one thing. So they wanted to kind of back out and start over to get to a point where they were able to. Yeah. And it, it was still in, it was still in very early stages. There hadn't been discovery or anything like that um, with the non-delegation claim. And and so I think just um, starting over with a lawsuit that is able to challenge both um, and, you know, take shape in a new way is probably what they're wanting to do. And that makes sense, too, because trying to find a plaintiff who's like a person um, who would be the person it would be someone who would be able to challenge this law is, you know, like you mentioned, significantly a hard thing to do, especially in a case like this where timing is, is so important and being able to 
you know, recognize you are pregnant before a heartbeat can be detected, which is whatever it is, like three or four weeks or whatever, um, is not something that happens that often. So it is, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a hurdle. So, uh, you know, they, this lawsuit will continue to move forward. They are going to keep working on it. It is really important to both of those organizations, EMW, of course, because it's what they do, and the ASLU because that is a civil rights issue, So our civil liberties issue. So that is uh, – we'll hear more about it eventually. Uh, we just have to wait a little bit longer. Okay. Um, last thing we're going to talk about today is the candidates being selected for the House District 93 race, which is uh, a bit of a drama. Um, so the matchup has been selected uh, to, to replace the late Lamine Swan, um, and it will be between Adriel Camuel on the Democratic side and Kyle Whalen on the Republican side. All right, so Adriel Camuel was selected ahead of several candidates on the Democratic side, but most notably Emma Curtis, who is vying to become the first trans person elected to the Kentucky State Legislature. So Emma Curtis announced her candidacy in a big way. Uh, she had been the feature of journalistic writings in nearly every local news publication. Um, she had some features written about her in places like Queer Kentucky and stuff like that. And she unveiled a pretty significant campaign structure, complete with a logo, bands of supporters, and everything else. So she had a well-established campaign that was pushing um, to get the nomination for this seat. Um, Ms. Curtis has been very involved in the most recent legislative session, especially in opposition to SB 150, testifying several times about the bill. Uh, of course, that's the uh, anti-trans bill we mentioned earlier today that injunction has been issued against. Uh, but she was in Frankfurt a lot talking about this bill. Okay, but nominations for special elections. Um, campaigns are not really the thing that win it for you. Um, they're a function of the local party. Um, the legislative district where it, it, if you're in, uh, this is a very complicated process, but when you're in Louisville and Lexington, you, you know, the legislative, uh, district, uh, committee basically comes together, creates a nominating committee, uh, and, and they all vote on who they want the, uh, the person to be and it like the amount of vote you get is based on the precinct that you're in and it's really it's a very complicated process but it's one with very specific rules that are laid out very disp like very or like it, they're, they're laid out in great detail um and uh you know their fairness is something uh that's up for a debate but it is a process that's been standing for a long time and also has been the subject of review many many times where people have tried to find a better way to do this and often uh, and it has been changed many times and uh you know it still kind of comes back as like man there really isn't a good way to do this if there is like true competition for the nomination in a special election so Anyways, they are a function of the local party, and Adriel, Adriel Camuel has been a part of the local party apparatus for a while. Um, she's, like, in the group. Um, she's been doing other things, helping campaign, and, and people in the in that local – I mean, she, there's pictures of her with people like, um, you know, Sherilyn Stevenson, who mo a lot of this district was her – Previously, you know, before redistricting, a lot of Lamine Swan's district was uh, Sherilyn Stevenson's district. Um, she worked, uh, did a lot of work with uh, Andy Bashir. So she's been involved in, in campaigns and democratic politics in this district for a while. And of course, Miss Miss Curtis uh, is. Um, someone who, uh, you know, was very active last year, has been in Frankfurt a lot, but, um, you know, probably hasn't been as active in the actual Democratic Party apparatus, uh, unlike Miss Camuel. So anyways... 
uh, the party apparatus chose Miss Camuel as the more known quantity. Um, that is the person that they know better. They have a personal relationship with her, and she was picked. Um, you know, I don't think the vote was really all that close, but I don't know exactly what the vote was because it's like not exactly one person, one vote. It is based on the percentage of the precinct and all this kind of like weird rules that are all laid out in the in the bylaws. Miss Camuel, for her po- for her part, works for uh, the Fayette county uh education system i don't think she's a teacher but she works uh, for the she works for the schools there um in, in some form or fashion that's her that's her day job so having somebody uh, involved in the schools is always good uh in frankfurt so she will be a good candidate and, and will be a good representative if if she wins i'm sure um and, and after all this kind of went down miss curtis's side seemed pretty dejected and I, I think for good reason uh you know this process is complicated it doesn't always feel or seem very fair um it's a complicated mess a lot of the time um but you know it's a special election and they're supposed to be special they're not supposed to be normal elections they're kind of placeholders to tide you over until you can have a real election there is an actual primary uh, a much bigger electorate where stuff like a campaign stuff like having big supporters who can go and canvas for you and go to events for you really matter so if if emma curtis wants the seat you know there is another election and if she's up for it i certainly hope she runs and i hope she's not too discouraged by this process to, to bow out of the primary next year because i do think she's a good candidate i think adriel adriel camuel is a good candidate too and, and i think that this is a seat that deserves um it deserves the people to weigh in. Um, so, you know, I certainly hope both of them have the chance to bring uh, their campaign to Democratic voters uh, in the district next year. So that's the Democratic side, the side with a lot more drama. The Republican in the race is Kyle Whalen. So he actually ran for the seat back in 2022 and got 46% of the vote. So it was like less than a 10% race last time. You know, it's 50, uh, 46 to 54 Um that that's like not a race that a republican um couldn't win um but the Mm -hmm. election will be held as the same time as the general election i expect andy bashir to do very well in house district 93 and so i do feel good about miss camuel's chances but of course uh it, it isn't like a given um so we will certainly see so all that said, Jasmine, uh, what do you think about this uh, whole situation uh, as it's evolved over the past week? Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, wasn't Cameo on the nominating commission, but just like had to recuse herself from the vote? Wasn't that part of this also? Yeah, the way that the nominating commission is selected is from like the precincts. And, um, you know, she was selected to be on the nominating commission, which is in within the rules. You are allowed to do that. Um but uh, did decide to recuse herself. Um, I will say, like, changing all of these rules gets really complicated, right? Because if you go out in the state, right, if you go to, you know, the first house district or, like, the fourth house district, and it's, like, um, and, and out there, instead of doing, like, precincts, they do it by counties. You know, some counties out there only have, like, one or two people on their committees because right. that's who's involved. And so if you say, if you serve on the nominating committee, you can't stand for a candidate. Like the people who are involved are the people who uh, are going to run and having those people recuse themselves gets to be pretty complicated. Right. Uh, uh, you know, if you can't like, so it, it isn't always appropriate to have a, a rule about those people recusing themselves. You're just at that point are depending on, um, 
people's kind of integrity. Now, there's likely a way to fix it, and I, you know, I'm <laughs> full disclosure on the body that reviews these things and has a vote in how to change these things. And I do think that there's some work being t uh, undergone right now to kind of change some of these rules, especially in places that have. Uh, like Louisville and Lexington do get treated a lot different because of their dense populations and the number of legislative districts that are just inside of those two cities. Um, so, I, you know, I don't exactly know how the change will be made, but I do know that there's a movement underway to change this specific bylaw. Um, but yes, that was the case. Um, Adriel Camuel did the did the integrous thing, did recuse yeah. herself from voting on it. But yes, that was that was the case and was certainly a uh, uh, an issue for for a while there. Yeah. And well, you said exactly what I was going to say is that like, while this seems really unfair in Lexington, in other parts of the state, it's incredibly hard yeah. to have anyone even run, especially in a special election. And if that's the person who's willing to run, like, what, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that it, that it, it's tough. Um, but I, I think that, you know, either of these women would be good candidates and good advocates in Frankfurt. They're both like, you know, dedicated to organizing. But I'll just say that I found Emma Curtis's like special election campaign for the nomination, like incredibly energizing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she's shown that like she definitely like has what it takes to run for office and run um, a good campaign. I mean, she already had announced endorsements from state legislators. And so um, I think, I mean, she certainly like could be a strong contender to, to run for whatever she wants to. Um, and I, I really hope that, that she does. Yeah. I mean, I think the state legislature would be a great landing spot for her. Like, you know, like I said, this is an election that will have a full primary um, you know, we look forward to, to if, if both of them run hearing from both of them, like, I really do hope that the, you know, um, Emma Curtis finds a place, um, to, to make her voice heard in, in state government, city government, whatever it is, um, in the future. So, um, really looking forward to hearing more from her in the future, but for now, Adriel Curtis or Adriel Camuel is the nominee. Um, so we're really hoping that she wins this race, which is not a given, um, but but should be something that Democrats are certainly able to win uh, in, in November. So all of that said, that is what we have to say about HD 93. All right, Jasmine, anything else you want to talk about today? No, I talked a lot. Yeah, you did. But I did, too. I did my best. <laughs> we, we both worked out before this. I'm all tired. Yeah, we're in the, it's the middle of the day. We're not working, so we're just recording. Yeah. Uh, all right, Jasmine, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do it? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter sometimes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Bye.